Father God, our prayer right now is that you would uh, convict us in truth, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts uh, to your grace in ways that shape us, in ways that uh, transform us for your glory and our deep joy. Lead our hearts and our minds to truth uh, that shapes our lives uh, as we read and learn from your word this morning. Um, I have gotten now, I think, into a bit of a rhythm, or I feel safe in doing it, in asking you guys questions. Uh, each week, question. And each week, everyone looks at the floor and freaks out and panics. I uh, hope he doesn't pick me. So I thought, oh, well, we'll do it again this, mor- this morning, ask you a question uh, to get you thinking about what we're going to look at today. But this, this time, what I want you to do is to write down... Hey, don't be rushing ahead, Emily, type A personality. Just calm down. Um, you haven't even heard the question. I don't know what I'm doing. Hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write down the answer to, to the question. And that way I want you to have it sitting there as we go through what we're going to do today. So here's the question that I want you to think about. Emily's already got it. Uh, if you had to sum up who you were, if you were to draw uh, all that you are into a short sentence... What would you say? Just a short descriptor, just a, uh, a snappy little descriptor that as soon as you utter it, as soon as we hear it, uh, we pretty much know all we need to know about you. I'm a, I'm a warm and caring person. Whatever it is, what is the most uh, defining quality about how you understand yourself? Yeah, the answer's different now, isn't it? Uh, you, uh, just write that, park that. And just have that sitting there. In our journey through Galatians, uh, we've been journeying through it. Paul has now come to what is the the climax, if you like, the high point, what he's he's been driving at, uh, behind his argument. He's been arguing for this gospel and and for the nature and the content and the origin of this gospel that he has. And now he's arriving at at, at what it it does to us. His gospel has been that that God in his grace rescues us from sin. It's just his sheer delight to do it. It's just his sheer love, his utter unmerited favor that, that he comes and he rescues people. The evidence of that grace, that that grace has visited our life is faith, the work of the Spirit to, to do deep heart transformation in, in people, uh, to take us from those who live in rebellion uh, to God, to those who, who trust God, who, whose hearts are warm with affection for him. That's the, the work of the Spirit. And then the means of this grace and the object uh, of this grace we have seen is Jesus. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are justified before God, a sinner declared righteous. That's in his gospel. That's surely good news. It's a gospel that we have said that, that rescues us from the exhaustion, the foolishness of legalism, you know, where we try to earn God's favour through, through rules and, and keeping regulations, trying to put God in debt sort of thing. It's a, it's a gospel that guards us from the foolishness of hypocrisy, living lives that don't line up with what we believe, as if uh, grace and faith kind of may have no impact, don't transform uh, have no noticeable change in our lives. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel does. That's how Paul became a Christian. That's how Peter became a Christian. That's how all you Galatians became a Christian. That's how you and I became a Christian. That's even as we've seen how Abraham became a Christian uh, thousands of years before there were Christians. 
And now Paul, sitting on top of that, just, that gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, says that that is not the end of it, that that's not where it ends, that there's more. It's not the best of it. The best of it is what it makes us. It gives us a new identity. The best bit about this gospel is the adoption uh, that flows out of it. The best bit is that those who are in Christ Jesus, which is a a favourite term of Paul's to describe the closeness uh, of relationship that a believer has with Jesus, that they are all, that they are by faith in Christ Jesus, all sons of God. This gospel makes all people in faith sons of God. Now, uh, progressive, uh, we're in Victoria. Uh, before we all squirm in uncomfortable anxiousness about the use of a gender-specific uh, title, uh, what we need to understand is it's, it's, it's merely, in inverted commas, uh, a descriptor, a metaphor. You're swimming in the shallow end of the pool if you understand this term son here uh, purely in, in, in masculine tones or, or, or as some people have, have seen the way Paul writes as an example of, of his chauvinistic bias. That would be to miss the actual power and the grandeur of its application. And the application of this is a type, a type of adoption whereby regardless of what you were previously Uh, now in Christ God adopts us to the degree that we have the full rights and privileges of an only son an only heir to a greater state it's a cultural metaphor or using a cultural practice to create a metaphor to describe uh, the relational reality of the Christian You, you are now a son to the Father in, in a relational uh, uh, relationship with God as your Father in a particular way. Um, and let me put it this way. The Gospel makes us children of God who, have all have, who all have the rights of God's only Son. We all in Christ have the same rights as Jesus. The sun sounds a bit over the top, doesn't it? How? By virtue of being in Christ. It's not something that we have to chase. It's not something that we have to work for. In this sentence here, this little verb are, that's being you are, is describing a state of existence, a state of reality. You already are children of God. And the nature of that children that you are is you are a son That's what the gospel made you. The type of legal rights, privileges that you have as a child of God are akin to being the only son to a great estate. So, as we look at this word, we we, we begin to see the richness uh, of the metaphor. Paul fleshes it out a bit more in verse 5. The work of Jesus on our behalf uh, when we accept him in faith means that you have received... Adoption in the nature of a firstborn only son. Here Paul takes an illustration of what happens culturally in a Greco-Roman culture where someone receives full rights of the son in adoption. 
to describe what God does to us all uh, by grace through faith in Jesus. In a Greco-Roman world, there was this legal transaction whereby sonship, a position of full entitlement to everything that the father owned, was given to someone who was not by nature or biology his son. Now, this would typically happen and mainly happen when a wealthy father, wealthy man, had, had no son, had no heir to his estate, no, no children even. So they could adopt a son, often a slave, and the adoptee is taken out of their old station in life, whether that's a slave or whatever, and placed into a new station of life. And when that happens, all that person's old debt, sometimes you're in slavery due to a debt or sometimes you're born into it, but all of that is instantly cancelled. And he instantly becomes an heir to all that the father owned with rights and privileges as though he was the father's very own son. It's, it's this type of adoption, sonship, that Paul drops over like a blanket on every believer as a heavenly status, as a re- re- relational reality. Paul describes those who are, as Paul describes those who are sons, we shouldn't pick up on the, on, specifically on the, on, the, on the manliness of it or the male traits. It's the last thing on Paul's mind uh, when he uses the term son. We are closer to the heart of what Paul's concern for us to know is if we focus on the word all or everybody, all who have faith are like this. Paul's actually being very progressive here, very countercultural. For in his day, in most ancient cultures, a daughter or or, or women couldn't actually inherit property, weren't entitled to having access or or becoming heirs to all that a father owned, nor were they considered to be of equal value or dignity or, or capacity. But Paul says what was forbidden in culture is actually now normative in Christ. Paul uses another of his favourite metaphors to put, to put on Christ, those who are in Christ, to put on Christ, which he equates to baptism. The baptism here is not uh, the baptism that we do out in the bay, uh, you know, a symbolic kind of public display of an internal reality or in, that already exists. The baptism here that Paul talks of is that inward reality that has taken place, that, that, that regeneration of the spirit that has already taken place in the dead heart of a person to bring them into spiritual life. He describes it as the putting on of Christ. By virtue of putting on the righteousness of Jesus like you would put on a football jumper or a basketball jersey or, or even like traditional clothing, to identify you as belonging to a team or a culture, Paul says here, being in Christ so identifies you as having the same relationship and rights uh, with God that his son had. It's like having the identity of Jesus draped over you to the degree that that is now how you are recognised by God, like his very own son. There is, a, there is a sunness to all, regardless of whether you are a Jew or you are a Gentile, regardless of whether you are male or female, regardless of whether you're a slave or whether you are free. In Christ, all enjoy equally the same rights and the same privileges. All. All enjoy 
regardless of any previous uh, dividing and disqualifying social or economic or racial or gender or religious categories that, that normally divide us, that normally separate us, now all in faith in Christ have a sonship, have a, have a sonness about them uh, as they relate to the, their Father God. They are heirs to all that God has promised. In Christ, all previous barriers and exclusions are torn down. This doesn't mean, though, that, that the, natural, uh, the natural and good diversity, the natural and good distinctives, even duties and practices, even roles within culture and gender are obliterated. We are not all made homogenous, you know, all identical and all interchangeable, but we are all one in dignity now value, worth and relationship with God. We are all equally loved by the Father, cared for by the Father. We are all his adopted children. There are no favourites. No one less gifted or less able at being a child of God. This is how John starts his gospel in, in the first chapter there, 1 John 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will or of flesh, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but God. J.I. Packer, uh, who gets a fair run in this conversation, gets a fair run in this sermon, um, as I read, every commentator, every preacher basically nearly preached his book uh, knowing God. Probably gone, should have gone a little Alan DeGeneres and stuck a copy of it under your chairs and you could have read that instead of listening to the sermon. But J.I. Packer says of this adoption, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. The doctrine of justification makes us right before God, makes us right before God as a judge. We've spent four weeks looking at that. But in the gospel of adoption, we are loved by the Father. In justification, the picture is legal. We stand before a judge who makes a pronouncement and looking at the evidence, the blood of Jesus, the life of Jesus, clothed in Jesus, in which a person is now clothed, he pronounces that person not guilty, not guilty. That's what the gospel does. But in adoption, the judge not only declares you not guilty, but he gets down from the bench where he's sitting and he moves towards you and he comes towards you and he takes the chains off you personally and he says, come home with me. Come home, come back to my place, my son. There's a sonness about you now. There's a sonship that I have in relationship with you now. Come, come meet the family. They're pretty messed up, they're pretty jacked up, but I love them. I love them like I love my son. When I look at them, I see my son's righteousness. I feel the same intimacy with them. There's no, there's no, there's no shame here in this home. There's no condemnation here in this home. Just my commitment to their transformation and their well-being. That is the gospel adoption. That is what's being described here as the end result of all that Paul has argued for. To be right with God is certainly a great thing, but to be loved by God and cared for by God the Father in this way is surely, surely the greatest way of understanding yourself 
Again, Packer in his book says, it's the richest way of answering the question, who am I? I am a child of God. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, Children of a Loving God, says the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. It has always been the love and mission of God throughout history to be true to his promise to make us his children again. To be true to his promise to Abraham. We capture that in Genesis 12 and 15. Indeed, to be true to the promise right out of the gate that he gave to Eve in Genesis 3.15 in the garden. To send a son into the world. A seed, a descendant, a son into the world who would make all orphaned people, all people who by willful rebellion are children of wrath, Children enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Children still trying to win God's approval through merit. Thinking they can put God into debt. Or, or that God really isn't that offended by sin. Sin doesn't really matter too much. I can live however I like and, and God will just forgive me. He's a good and loving God. The simplistic basic principles uh, that divide us in this world. They have become completely redefined when God sends his son as a means through which these orphans, these lost rebels, are now made children of God. We call that grace. The son was sent at a date set by the father. Paul says here, there's no, there's no alarm, there's, there's no sense of panic in heaven. Just the sovereign commitment to a promise. God who guides history uh, to his plan, not enslaved by our actions, but, but, but freely moving towards us, sends his son. Sends his son, born as all humans are born. Again, in John's Gospel, it tells us that the word, the pre-existent word, the eternal word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Came and he was born into the same way all other human beings are born. Born uh, to a state of obligation to the law to fulfill the law, to please God. That is what all humans have to do. And Jesus accomplishes it. Jesus, through his life of perfect obedience, becomes qualified to redeem all people from their debt to the law. The word redeem here in verse 5 carries a picture of of paying the full price for a slave. Jesus completes the promise uh, to Abraham He fulfills the law of Moses. He endures the wrath of God instead of us, paying and satisfying the demands towards sin. So why? So that we might receive adoption as sons through faith in Jesus. So we might have the privilege of of being viewed upon as the the firstborn, only uh, son of a great father. That's the mechanics of how this glorious privilege becomes your reality. That's the gospel. And sons of God is what it makes you adopted. There's a sonness about this that comes to you. You see, if all we had was the son coming into the world to change our status, merely making us legally right with God, it wouldn't be enough to change our lives. It wouldn't be enough to change your heart. 
for us to fundamentally understand ourselves as complete, for us to fundamentally understand ourselves as accepted and to rest in our faith, we'd still feel the need uh, to, to, to show we deserve this changed status, that we are good enough. We'd still feel the need to try and somehow maintain our status. But God does not merely change our status. He adopts us into his family to the degree that we enjoy and share the same rights and privileges and the same access to him as the Son, as, as Jesus would. The most transformative way in which God does that in us is by sending the Spirit into our hearts, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you sons of God? Uh, and because sorry, the purse. And because you are sons of God, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, "Abba, Father," so that you were no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And Paul has he's moved out of all the um, objective truth and into a subjective experience. By faith, we trust in the work of the Son to bring us into this objective legal condition. It's ours whether we feel it or not. It's a permanent and irreversible reality that we have. It can't be taken no matter how we feel, no matter our environment. But God also gives us the Spirit so that we now have a radically new experience of God. We, 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 we experience God. We don't just have a knowledge of God, but we are brought into a relationship with God, a particular type. The Spirit of God, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, is the feeling of confidence by which we now have a relationship with God, by which we now run toward God, by which we now turn to God in prayer. And we do that whether we feel shame. In fact, we do that when we feel shame. We do that when we feel guilt when we feel like we've stuffed up. We do that when we, when, when we need help and comfort. God is a Father we turn to in prayer to share all our praise and all our peril. The Spirit makes us feel in our hearts that we are children and God is our Father to be approached, not fearfully, not shamefully, but with passion and freedom, warmth and nearness and overwhelming boldness and a certainty that God loves us, loves us like a father. It's the same spirit in which Jesus lived, in which he approached God as Father. This is how Jesus prayed. Abba, Abba Father, Garden of Gethsemane, troubled in heart. He cries out, Abba Father. Jesus constantly, in his language about God, referred to him as Father, Abba Father. He's saying that if you are identified with me, this is an evidence of how you know you're a child of God. You call him Father. He's no longer a distant deity, some malevolent figure in the world. This word crying here that we have in verse 6 is, is not soft or resigned, just, just hoping to be heard, just some kind of whimper. It's a strong and passionate voice for Dad. Abba Father is often poorly uh, over-sentimentalized if not trivialized, there's a sentence, by people who say 
it's baby speak, it's, it's, it's dada, it's papa. It kind of is, that's nice. But it robs it, if we just kind of leave it in that lane, it robs it of its relational maturity. Abba is, is the intimate name used by children in their family home. It is not the cooing of a baby. It's the multi-purpose calling of a child who knows that, that, that at that call, Abba, Dad, there will be a response by a loving father because that child has experienced, has felt, who knows uh, the goodness of the father, the goodness of God. It's kind of like when my kids call out from their room, Dad, Dad, there's a spider. Or Dad, could you find my socks? Or Dad, I feel sick. I feel sad. I feel angry. They just cry out, Dad, to whatever situation happens to be concerning them at the time. Dad, that's more of it. That relational, intimate family in the home way we now speak and know and understand God. Now listen, they don't sit around thinking about, hmm, how will I approach that adult male in the other room? What would be the most persuasive argument to convince him out there to respond to me? No, they just cry out, Dad. They don't care if I'm watching a footy. They don't care if I'm reading a book, eating my tea. Just Dad, Dad. The Spirit makes that privilege real in our hearts with respect to God. Gives us an assurance that we can approach God as Dad. Sit with that for a little moment. You can approach the holy God of the universe anytime you like. Just call out Dad and he loves it. And every time you doubt it, what does the Spirit do? Where does the Spirit lead you? Well, certainly not to your impressive list of achievements, but rather to what you have been clothed with. You have been clothed with Christ. You are now in Christ. And so you now have the same kind of access to the Father that this brings. And we often quote that uh, Timothy Keller uh, line where he says um, only a child only the child of a king would dare wake a king up at 2am in the morning for a glass of water well, we have that kind of access it's what the spirit brings in us when we become a Christian we often think in the framework of, of what God has removed from us he's taken my sin he's removed my guilt he's taken away my shame he's removed my judgment but what about what we have become? What about what we have been made? What we are? What we have been given? A sonness with God as our Father. Children of God. Often, sadly, we spend a lot of time saying, I'm justified. How do I maintain that justification? The reality of the love of God is sometimes the last thing to dawn on us that we are loved. We are children of God who cry out, Dad, how extraordinary. How extraordinary. No no other religion thinks like this. No other religion would dare think like this. But this is what the gospel makes us, children of God. J.I. Packer, again in his book, Knowing God, you should go and buy it, says, go and see Claire, um, you, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion 
if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being a God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and their prayers, indeed their whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. What is the most defining quality about you? How do you understand yourself? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, again this morning for this book of Galatians that you laid on the heart of Paul to write to these churches to remind us of the wonderful uh, experience that you bring us into uh, as, as Christians, that we are your children, that we are your sons and your daughters. We are in your family and, and, and the nature and the privileges of that relationship as, as, as one who is the only son, the only heir to a great uh, fortune and, a, and, a, and, and an estate. And it's, it's just level ground. Once we're a child, we're, we're brothers and sisters. And it doesn't matter whether we voted Labor or Liberal, whether we're Collingwood or Carlton or, or whatever the things that divided us before, we're now all one in Christ. It's our prayer that this would more and more, uh, that, 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 that that relational reality would take hold of more and more people. That the things that we go to war over are melted down uh, by, the, by, the, by the presence of Christ in our life. It's the solution to, to the madness of murder in mosques. It's, it's more and more needed. Would, would we not only be agents of experiencing this grace, but would we be agents of proclaiming this grace so that others would know and encounter and hear and feel this gospel? We thank you that you have moved to us and, and brought us into this reality this morning. We just want to give you thanks and we love you. Amen.